0: It's a fact of life as well. We all yeah. know we're going to die one day without sounding no. morbid. The only certainty isn't it really? So I reminded, you know we in society were very happy to explicitly talk about a program we watched on Netflix or dating or sex or something at work, our careers, for example. Mm. We're very comfortable in those subject areas. But when it comes to death, it's met with a lot of awkwardness. It's very hush-hush. Uh, often people don't know what to say.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new season of Brown Don't Frown a podcast which was inspired by my own personal story and journey with womanhood and feminism. It's a podcast where we celebrate new perspectives and unconventional thinking. Brown Don't Frown seeks to build a more inclusive discourse which breaks down the prejudice and assumptions about different passions, opinions and cultures and shines a light on the stories of underrepresented women who do not fit the typical criteria or ideals of mainstream feminism. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Stay tuned for what we hope to be an informative, engaging and thought-provoking Season 3. We have some incredible guests lined up, including other podcasters, changemakers in the fields of climate change, artificial intelligence, technology, environmental campaigns, South Asian mental health awareness and bereavement as well as personal stories in the wake of Black Lives Matter. If you have thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast in any way, please do feel free to get in touch at, pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care and stay safe. Hello and welcome. Today we're talking about bereavement barriers and breaking stereotypes. I'm pleased to introduce Kalsoma Ali, a fellow British Bangladeshi and host of the Bereavement Room podcast. Welcome Kalsoma, and thank you for being here to join me today.
0: Hi Tanya. Hi, thanks for having me on your show. It's great to be here. I love the title of your podcast, by the way. Oh, really? and- <laughs> yeah. I thought oh. it
1: was a bit of a fluke but yeah I guess it's it's quite light-hearted so
0: yeah, yeah. I'll do my best to not be frowning at the end of this
1: <laughs> I know it's quite hard with this topic but yeah would you like to just tell us a bit more about yourself um and yeah the podcast
0: maybe? yeah sure Sure, so uh, hi everyone, Uh, my name is Korsima Ali, I'm born and bred from Greater London, uh, as Tanya said, I identify as British Bangladeshi Muslim, Uh, I work in bereavement, so I support families, young people and children, also deaf within the school community when someone has died, and I am also the host of Bereavement Room Podcast. I guess you could say I spend a lot of time talking about deaf and grief within the diaspora. As a British Bengali why would you say talking about bereavement is so important to you? I guess you could say it's important because of my own lived experiences I feel like you know most of all of our ventures start because of our own personal lived experiences Mm -hmm. Um, it can be incredibly challenging and isolating when when someone you love dies and as a British Bengali I feel that there are there's sometimes stigma, there's sometimes taboo, there's some challenges that we have to overcome when it comes to bereavement. It's yeah. also a silence topic in many yeah. ways. It's a fact of life as well. We yeah. all know we're going to die one day without sounding no. morbid. The only certainty, isn't it, really? So It is. A lot of the time. You know, we in society were very happy to explicitly talk about a program we watched on Netflix or dating or sex or something at work our careers for example mm. we're very comfortable in those subject areas but when it comes to death that it's met with a lot of awkwardness it's very hush hush often people don't know what to say yeah yeah you
1: found that um, i mean i've lost three very close people Um, So my mother when I was a child, my nana and my grandfather about six years ago, um, and then my nanny and my grandmother uh, almost two years ago now. And so grief and I guess more significantly bereavement over a prolonged period have basically been uh, at the forefront of my life for as long as I can remember. And it's something Mm -hmm. that sort of comes and goes in terms of how apparent it is and how it impacts me as a person. But I think that sort of feeling never really goes away
0: no yeah it it stays with you uh we all grieve uniquely i guess you could say but how can i put it into words i think grief is something that you you carry with you yeah and it's there in the back of your mind and you just kind of carry on we still function but it's there yeah yeah
1: when you think of bereavement what are the three words which spring to your mind? Without explanations or just? Yeah, no, yeah, you could definitely go for the explanations. It'd be good to know why those words come to you.
0: Okay, so I'd say love, isolation and change. Okay. So with love, you know, when we grieve, grief is basically love. Yeah. So it's how much you loved that person. And even if you didn't get on with that person and you had a poor relationship with them, that's still kind of the love that you had for yeah. them. It's very confusing, and it's a a hard thing to navigate. And for me, uh, when I think of my own personal experiences, you know, my mum died when I was in my twenties. My younger brother passed away two years ago, and then my dad early this year. And for me, you know, I love them very much. I was very close to them, and. That's what my grief is. It's how much I love them. And that's why it's so difficult to navigate. Yeah. I guess uh, with isolation, you hear often people will mention that they feel very isolated in their grief.
1: Yeah.
0: And it can be very isolating. Like you could be at a party with lots of people. You could be surrounded by all of your closest people that love you, but still feel quite lonely. Yeah yeah and
1: it's like you're the only one who's experiencing this and like no one can relate or understand what you're going through
0: no and you know it's really hard to put that into words when you have to speak to your family and friends um it can be difficult to articulate why it's so isolating but it's so unique to you and your experience yeah and the relationship you had with that person. And it's, it's very lonely. It's very lonely. Yeah, it
1: can be definitely, especially you haven't got, I guess if you don't have people around you who you can really confide in, or you feel as though they won't really appreciate it or take the time to listen to what you have to say, then it feels like you really are lonely. You don't have anyone to Mm. speak
0: about it with. What was the third word? word? The third one is change. Change. Okay. Yeah. Um, You know, when my mum died, I, well, let me sort of backtrack a bit. When my mum was alive, I was a very different person. Oh, really? Yes, very much so. And when she died, I completely changed. Uh, People picked up on that very, very quickly over time. It's like I'm a completely different person now. And that was very much part of my identity loss. Okay. Okay uh which yeah. is something some that a lot of greeters it's a fear theor- theoretical it's a theory um so it's, it's like a born again sort of thing
1: different-
0: i guess you, yeah i guess you could say it is you're born again but it's more like an identity loss you lose your role right you- yeah, the the role that you had before, you kind of long for what life was like when your loved one was alive. Yeah, um, what the dynamics were like before. So you have some kind of identity loss. Uh, I think anyone that grieves can resonate with the fact that something does change inside you, and something will change in your environment, whether it's you know family dynamics or maybe work. You know, my three words
1: the first one for me always is denial um in the sense that i detach myself from the reality of death and what's actually happening and sort of adopt another persona of being calm and collected and a part of dealing with that is through stifling memories so like if i think of like a happy memory or even a sad one with that person who who's now died i i it all brings back memories and it makes me feel really sad so then I'll pretend like I I don't want to remember it sort of thing it's only when you bring it up in conversation with someone else that you remember and that's not a very That's a pretty toxic way to deal with grief, I think. And it's something that I think I need to sort of unfold a bit more and explore. Um, And the second Mm. one I'd say would be anxiety, which I think stems from just feeling anguish and knowing that you're not, you can't really do anything about what's happening or what's happened. Mm. And then I guess the third one would be fear. So just, and that fear is essentially about losing everyone who I love um, to death of course, and that's going to happen, it's inevitable, but whenever someone dies, I think that actually stems from when my mum died, like as soon as that happened, I thought, I think if I'm just going to lose like every single other person one by one.
0: Mm.
1: And I've never lost that fear, like it's never gone away. I always worry that like my brother or my adopted parents now, so my, my aunt and uncle, so my mum's sister and her husband adopted me and my brother. Okay. So I call them mum and dad now. So and they were really happy for us to do that because they didn't want us to feel as though we'd lost out on having a family. So they were like, mm. "You should, you know, feel very comfortable calling us. Like, don't worry." Um, so yeah, those are my three yeah thoughts when I, when it, or words that I sort of sort of come to my mind when I think of um, bereavement.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, the first one that you spoke about, it's it's painful to go there it's painful to really experience those feelings and to do that mental gymnastics. I think about what that means for you to process that. And it's a lot of mental work. It's hard. Yeah,
1: definitely. Very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I guess both of us being Bengali women and having grown up in Britain, um, I guess if you could pick one thing that you like about South Asian or Bengali attitudes and culture towards mm. bereavement, what would that be and why?
0: Uh, love this question. There <laughs> are a lot of positives. I have to say there are a lot of positives. contrast really
1: <laughs> that with um, the English sort
0: of attitudes towards grief and yeah bereavement. Mm. Well, I think what I, I'll start with what I love yeah about our community is that everyone comes together
1: exactly yeah. yeah
0: there are people that you haven't seen in a long time that will phone you that will turn up they'll show up and they will be present and I guess when my mum died um, one thing that I noticed was that two of the local Bangladeshi restaurants now we didn't ask them they obviously heard what had happened they just turned up with these two massive pans of food right yeah yep and i'm not talking tupperware or a takeaway box i'm talking like a huge pot you know like a deg but a huge pot yes,
1: yeah 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 i know what you mean
0: yeah and i was just like what the hell i was like this is amazing like it was very caring and it was a lovely gesture um And I just think that when someone dies in our community, we really, we really know how to hold the space for one another and look after one another and, and check if someone needs help with something logistically. Yeah, Uh,
1: definitely being a sounding board as well. Just listening to people um, when they're going through it and sharing memories of that person that they also, also knew as well a lot of the time. And just talking about those memories and showing all the good things that happened with that person's presence.
0: Absolutely.
1: It's
0: yeah. It's just a lovely moment. And um, I think I really appreciated that in my own personal experiences. Yeah. But, but also interviewing people on Bereavement Room podcast, you often hear the same pattern from our South Asian guests that uh, that's Mm. the one thing that they love, that everyone comes together, whether it's prayer, rituals, um, you know, there'll be people in the kitchen helping you. Yes. And
1: yeah, definitely can relate to that. I mean, I remember when my mum passed away that there, so we didn't have, so we had food for about two or three weeks. Like we didn't have to buy anything because that's how much food we had from, yeah, from restaurants, as you said, um, local restaurants. And we had a lot of, um, so my mum had a lot of friends and I did not realise this <laughs> until she died. And we had so many people turn up and yeah. bringing food and just big, um, big, I guess, what are they called? Just big pans of like biryani and different dishes. Mm. That's and it. I think a lot of the time your taste buds obviously will go numb when, you, when you're when you grieving for someone, but it was just so nice having that and having people come and just grieve and, and share their memories um, and, and basically cry and, you know, just get it all out, really. And it was really nice um, thinking about all the positives and the good memories um, that were shared with her and with my mum and her friends and her family. Um, and we had... Yeah, my cousins, I remember they stayed, they missed about a month's worth of school really because they just like lived with us for a whole month just to help us go through it. And it was so so comforting to have them there. And I don't see that same sense of togetherness um, amongst, yeah, English families because I have a lot of friends um, who have gone through the grieving process and it's it's completely different. You know, it's a, there's a sense of awkwardness and tiptoeing around people who've lost their loved ones. Would you say that you've mm. seen that as well?
0: Well, that's a good point. You know, growing up watching TV, right? I often would see like Christian and Catholic and English funerals. I've never been to one. I've been to a Greek Orthodox funeral. Oh, wow. Uh, but I've never actually been to like um, uh, an English person's funeral. So mm. I don't know if it works other than what I see on telly, right? Yeah. And I guess growing up, I kind of like that they have that wake and stuff and that it is celebratory yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, but there is that tiptoeing and there is that awkwardness uh, in, in, in their culture. But at the same time, I feel like there is something very celebratory and people aren't so separate, yeah. which brings me on, brings me onto what I dislike. Yeah. What do you about, about? Yeah.
1: <laughs> about the South Asian culture? Bengali culture more
0: important. Yeah. I don't like that often I find, you know, cuz I am Muslim, I don't really get why women aren't allowed at the burial. And I know yeah, that's, that's exactly, not that every. Exactly my point as well about what one thing I dislike. And I and I and I know that it's not every Muslim family which I've discovered, but it's the general consensus of most yeah, m- muslims experience. Uh, women will go to the janaza if there's a woman's part in the mosque uh, Which is lovely The Janazah is a, a funeral prayer For those of you that are listening that don't know um, But the burial part, I don't really get that It's very quick, it's, it's very cold Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very rushed
1: And it's almost like people don't want to be there Like they feel disgusted Not disgusted, but they feel like they shouldn't really be there It's like a hesitation throughout Um, It's shame. It's like it feels like shame or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. That's that's the I think the accurate word to describe how it feels.
0: And I don't know if that's you know it's something that I'm trying to explore on the podcast when I'm speaking to my Muslim guests, and you know people think it's because it's something in the hadith, which I think I think there's a line in the hadith about women's presence.
1: Yeah, I was looking it up actually earlier today. um, And I think the quote goes something like the deceased suffers when someone wails loudly or something like that. Um, Yeah, but that doesn't mean women
0: wailing loudly.
1: But that is is the stereotype is that women are the ones who do that and men don't. They're a lot more composed and they can handle themselves.
0: But maybe that was the stereotype back then when it was written. That was attributed to women only. Mm, delivered back then but Mm. we live in 2020 right uh in the age of technology social media information is a click away uh things have changed Mm. it's it's not about patriarchy and what our culture dictates and for me I really dislike the fact that women cannot be present why can't we just have a conversation with our families and say look in order for me to get closure I need to go to this burial mm.
1: yeah that's there's definitely a double standard and that's one thing I really dislike about the grieving process within our culture I remember when my mum died you know obviously my my nanny was very very upset about it and whenever we went to her grave um, my auntie would say to my my nanny like don't cry because you're essentially causing disturbance and you're causing Um, your daughter hurt by crying and my grandma obviously like her daughter just died she's obviously going to be upset about it and she's going to cry and that sort of restriction on how we can grieve women mainly is I find that very frustrating I think it's pretty backwards in in today's culture I don't know why it still exists especially when if it's another woman restricting someone else's grieving process and obviously my auntie was her sister she would have been equally upset as well I imagine but yeah, I think she obviously in the process stopped herself from crying as well or crying as, um, as openly.
0: Hmm. I think it's a, a a part of this is to unlearn certain traditions that have been passed on. I get it in the past, maybe it was in context, but it's not anymore. And with mental health being a global health crisis by 2030, for our generation of Muslims that are now, you know, this generation of the age of social media, not being able to have your closure and say goodbye is it's detrimental to your mental health that's the way I see it and that's one of the things I just dislike and I think from my own experiences I really struggle with that you know when my dad died I didn't go to the burial yeah and I would you
1: have yeah I mean did you not go because obviously there's this you're not allowed to go because you're a woman sort of thing
0: well it was it was a brief conversation with my sister. I was like, You're going to the burial? And she's like, No, there's going to be no women there. So, like, Therefore, the I won't go either.
1: Yeah. 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 That's really, yeah, it's a very touchy area because I remember my granddad died a few years ago. Well, no, actually, maybe it was my grandma. I can't remember. It was one or the other. And yeah, my mum my currently, so my adopted mum, she really wanted to go to the burial. And her, so my auntie and other people in our family said, No, you shouldn't really be going because you're a woman. Mm. and my mum was just like well no it's my dad's my dad's just died i'm definitely gonna go and i want to be the first person who throws the um so the earth onto his um coffin Mm. she wanted to be the first person to do it or like one of the first people as as his daughter and people like all the men who were arranging the burial so like all the the funeral directors um, who were there to try to stop her and it was just like but she was just like I'm his daughter so I'm going to do it I'm really sorry but you just have to respect that like this is his funeral and then they like stepped back but it was just so it was such a an intense situation and all the other women in my family remained in the car um, at the burial ground and oh they said gosh. to me you should also stay You shouldn't come out, and I was really torn. I didn't really know what to do because I wanted to respect the faith and the culture. But at the same time, I thought, well, my grandfather's just died, and I should have a right because I didn't get to see my mum's burial. For I think it's because I was a kid then, so they didn't want me to see that, and that's fair enough. But this was a different situation, you know, I was an adult when he died, so yeah, that was a very touchy situation, and everyone was just like saying. Um, really negative things about my mum for doing that and saying, oh, you're going to bring shame. And you've basically caused your father to have essentially, what's the word for it when you are sinning on their behalf and bad things are going to happen to him in his grave. Like he'll have insects and things crawl all over him as a consequence of your your behaviour and your actions. And I thought that was a very horrible way to address something that maybe... Well,
0: that- I, you know, I've heard it time and time again on, on the podcast from speaking to people and also working in this space as well. Yeah. It's, we need to change our attitudes and have more open conversations. That's some old age from ages ago, from centuries yeah. ago, that do, isn't even real. And it's got nothing to do with Islam, quite frankly. It's to do with culture and patriarchy. Exactly. I honestly think that that's what it is. It's
1: culture, overriding faith. Or just mm. any sense of human decency, I think it's just, yeah, a very old old age tradition. Mm. I mean, mm. how, would you, how would you say we could change or address the narrative around that
0: attitude? Well, that generation's dying off now, to yeah. be quite frank. And I think the best we can do, our generation, right, we're we're the new generation where we're open to talking about mental health and grief and all the other things that are societal issues that are going on mm-hmm. we need to add this on the agenda as well yeah. we don't have to do what our parents and our grandparents did exactly
1: yeah we don't have to follow those in those footsteps especially when they have such a negative effect on one sex disproportionately you know it's, it's not fair at all um, no. really on to my next question about counselling and psychotherapy. I mean, they're very rarely spoken about among our communities because there's a huge stigma around it, of course. And I guess my question is how does counselling and psychotherapy work? And sorry, let me rephrase that. How do counselling and psychotherapy work? And I ask this question because I know you've worked in these areas previously. So perhaps you'll be able to shed some light on whether these attitudes to needing help are shifting in any way.
0: Mm, great question. Um, so, how does counselling and psychotherapy work? Well, I did my foundation year at Metanoia Institute last year, which is what you have to do in order to go onto the next stage to be accredited. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. And what I learned from that experience is that a counselling and psychotherapy is a very white, middle class, female profession. Mm-hmm it has a lot of status attached to it. You will very really well, I lie. I mean, you will see some Muslim therapists, Indian therapists, you'll see your being therapists, but there's very few of us out there. Right. There's, there's actually not that many. And how does it work? Well, you know, to answer the question, is it inaccessible? I mean, I'm, I'm going to reverse it a little bit. Yeah, there's a bit of stigma and shame attached to it, but with the Bangladeshi community, in particular do we even know what cancelling and psychotherapy is no
1: i don't think we do (laughs) i think people see it as a joke like why would you need that just you know deal with it that would be the response
0: but like if i was to say you know if I was to say to my parents or my sisters, like, yeah, I'm going to go see a counselor or a psychotherapist, I don't think they would shame me for it. I think they just ask the question, well, what for? Why am uh, yeah. what, what is it? What actually is it? What does it do? And I know exactly what my dad's response would have been. He would have been like, how much is it? And I would have said, <laughs> well, it's, it's 75 quid for 50 minutes. And he would have been like, forget that. You can talk to me. Like, you, know, you need to pay 75 pounds for cancer. So a lot of it is ignorance, I think, within yeah. our com- communities of actually what is it? How does it work? Yeah. How how does it work? We need to educate ourselves. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that there isn't stigma or shame attached to it because I have friends that identify as Indian and when they have said to their parents, I'm getting therapy. Their parents are like, "Oh no, you can't do that." What will the community say? Shame on us. We failed as parents. So I do. Yeah,
1: it might be uh, different. Mm, yeah, with the Indian, mm,
0: Indian communities. Yes. Yeah. So I, I feel I feel we have to be very careful about who we're speaking about because all communities are different. But yeah. in the Bangladeshi community, I actually think it's just an education piece.
1: Yeah, it's miseducation. People not really knowing about how it works you might just think it's a bit of a fad as you said um your dad's initial response would have been why do you need it why don't you just talk to me sort of things they might not realize the impact the positive impact it can actually have if you do Mm. seek counseling or psychotherapy
0: yeah exactly and it is a kind of explaining to them what that means and what mental health is and uh i think for their generation in particular is all about internalization and survival. Bury survive, bury survive. Don't talk about don't talk about yeah your emotions. Yeah. And it's not that my dad would have said, no, don't do it, shame on us. He it would have been an education piece for him and uh, more so than anything else and shame or stigma.
1: Yeah. A lot of people find solace in faith and spirituality as we've touched upon and they used as a way of coping with bereavement. Whereas I've also seen how some use religion as a means of judging other's moral compasses and their right to grieve even. And I've seen that with various members in my family. And these examples are, of course, at different ends of the spectrum, but notwithstanding that, is there too much emphasis placed on religion and faith during
0: bereavement within the Bengali diaspora? Mm. Depends on your family culture. I think that's an individual family culture yeah um I do often hear the standard line, you know, when I want to talk about my feelings, <laughs> and I once I want to listen without any judgment, they'll be like, "Just go and pray."
1: Yeah, that's literally the standard response.
0: Are <laughs> you just go gonna pray? Yeah, Yeah. you'll be all right. Just pray. That's all. That's all it is. And look, I'm not disrespecting that, right? If you've got faith and God helps you and whatever that may be, your spirituality and your belief system, that's wonderful. But in the life that we're living right now in 2020 and onwards... Um, that's not the only thing that's gonna h- help you get yeah, through. Especially if you're not really religious, because I I'm not very
1: religious at all. And as I've gotten older, I've become less and less religious. And at the moment, I don't really have a particular faith or following. But when I was a, a child growing up, you know, I did all the religious stuff. So I like I finished. Re- I read the Quran a couple of times. I did all the prayers. Mm. Um, and under the guidance of my my now um, my late grandmother, because she was very religious and spiritual as a person, and she'd always encourage me to to follow. In her footsteps um, and you know try and guide me in that way and say you know if you're going through a difficult time you should pray because you know God listens and all these sorts of sentiments but I just never really resonated with it in any particular way and even when I did pray during you know festivities like Eid when everyone sort of gets together and congregates I never felt that spiritual awakening like ever and I don't know maybe it's just me as a person but people like other members in my family who aren't particularly religious either they still say that prayer gives them a sense of soli- solitude and in, in a positive way um but i've just never had that so i wouldn't naturally turn to prayer and spirituality if, um after losing someone i just turn to i don't know really i think talking about it with other people really helps and mm. yeah, living uh, sort of thinking about the memories that you share with them for me is more of a I guess a coping mechanism to to come to terms with it what about
0: you Mm. so I'm similar to you know I read the Quran a few times when I was a kid I went to (laughs) Islamic school Quranic school whatever you want to call it. yeah Um, I was forced to go to that and I tried to put it off for years and years and years as a child but then my mum was like you can't put it off anymore it's a part of who you are yeah And I'm okay with that. But when you don't understand your religion, you see, there's reading the Quran and reciting your surahs, your prayers, just translating for everyone. And then there's understanding it. So, so, you know, there may have been a time when I was younger, that I would have turned to religion. And I'm not going to say that I don't read my tospi which is you know the like the rosary beads i do occasionally and it does bring me some peace occasionally but i'm also very realistic that i know that that's not the only thing that helps me mm. i i need to talk about it just like you do in order to come to terms with it and it is like a coping mechanism to talk about i think we need to differentiate what our emotions are and our grief yeah. versus uh, what religion does for you and yeah. i think it's also a case of do you understand your religion and i feel like there is a generation of people that don't understand Not really. actually what the religion is because we we were just forced to understand what our identity is by taking a couple of quranic classes exactly without actually understanding the Mm. yeah the history and meaning Mm. behind
1: it because with the quranic stuff i mean it was literally just rehearsing and memorizing but then like what does that mean Mm. what am i reading what is this all about yeah absolutely my final question um and there might be a lot for you to say about this i imagine but I think there are quite a few assumptions around South Asian family dynamics, including intergenerational living uh, with younger family members helping their elderly parents. By way of example, my mum my did that for my nanny in the last few years before she died. Um, and I imagine it will happen maybe with me, yeah, with my parents in the future. I don't know. Um, but can this stereotype of south asian communities looking after each other be a barrier to accessing external help for example a visiting nurse home care assistance or hospice care and how do we make our voice heard so that these types of misconceptions no longer continue
0: mm. well it's um this is a bit of a comp it's going to be a bit of a messy answer
1: yeah
0: it is <laughs> <it, it, it, laughs> it depends on a it depends on your family culture and situation so if i reflect on my own experiences my dad in his later life had dementia and parkinson's so that's a neurological degenerative disease right yeah um now he was type one diabetic he had to take insulin and it got to a point where he couldn't be trusted to inject his own insulin anymore so so that was very difficult and that can lead to all kinds of consequences and you know coma and whatnot yeah. so so I arranged for community nurses what we call the district nurses to come and inject the insulin for him now they would come once in the morning and once in the evening right they let themselves in and out mm-hmm. because I'm at work so Um, and it was really important for me to well you know I wasn't confident doing that injecting insulin because I was like I don't want to kill my dad yeah I don't want to give him too much or too less and then I'm gonna go to work and what if something happened so I Mm -hmm. I spoke to the GP and they said yeah because of his condition he he will need a community nurse in the morning and the evening to inject his insulin now there was one particular nurse because she saw there were lots of family in and out people visiting she was very meddling and interfering and the way that she saw it was that we should do it and not them yep yeah so so even when you do rely on these community services some of them are extremely I would go as far as to say a little bit racist Mm -hmm. because they think that you should be doing that and not them and we're like uh, putting pressure on national health service by taking up their service when there's loads of family and the other thing that really irritated me about You know, look, community nurses are great. Most of them were brilliant with my dad, but there was just that one there's always one (laughs) for everyone. Yeah. The one bad apple. And, you know, she used to get really annoyed because, you know, my dad's English was fantastic, but he was in his 80s and his English declined. And, you know, when you're at home a lot, like, yeah. you're not practicing your English that yeah, much. Yeah, same so it's thing happens to my
1: nanny as well. She just, like, lost her English language. Like, as as Yeah. The, she just stopped speaking it. Because
0: you were not really... She wasn't it, speaking to any,
1: anyone external. It would only be family, so...
0: Mm, and it's natural anyway that would happen for yeah. someone that uh, English is not their first language anyway and then yeah. they've retired but she used to get annoyed about the fact that she can understand my father sometimes mm. so, I, so I was like well what do you bloody expect he's got dementia and Parkinson's he's yeah. 81 years old and like I'm sorry you're just here to inject the insulin and then go just do your job yeah. and go so for me you know it's really complex to answer this question yep. and then on other occasions you know you get vilified if you rely on community nurses to do all of your caring for you yep by the community yeah it like you're abandoning your family
1: yeah a friend of mine recently made a comment so she's a nurse um and she made a comment on observation she had made and this is nothing against her at all It was just what she understood from what she saw and she said that you know asian families would always insist that their elderly relatives stay in hospital for just that little bit longer than necessary because they were their carers and were reluctant to take them home and that they essentially needed a break from caregiving but didn't want to send their relatives to a care home i think that really just goes to show that there is an assumption as you said that we should just leave south asian families to it because they can manage their own anyway but just like everyone else i think we need to understand that they might need a helping hand just as much as any other person so that really needs to be reinforced within Mm. care culture and just needing Mm.
0: extra help when you're a caregiver to someone so what i would say at the back of that is yes but are our services geared towards our needs. That's the other mm-hmm. question I'm gonna ask. Yeah. You know, is it actually tailored to what our needs are? I feel like a lot of these services aren't and you have to ask the questions and do the work with the GP in order to get a tailored package. Because yes. I can honestly tell you, me and my sister did a lot of work to get a package that was tailored to my father's needs. And
1: prior to that it was more just like a blanket approach to this is yes. what's happen without actually yes. asking, consulting what he might need from you.
0: Yes that's it in mm. it and it's a it is an assumption and I think we need more people working in the community to understand what our needs are in the South Asian experience you know how to look after our elders because uh, no offense to white communities I don't think that they really understand that unless they do the work and ask the questions without making the cultural assumption.
1: Yeah, I remember my nanny was very reluctant to go to hospital whenever like, she needed to check up or just needed to stay overnight. Like, She really, really did not like going. and She just preferred at-home care from my mum. And I don't know whether that's because of that. I think there's was, was clearly a communication barrier there as well, but just the way in which they deal and sort of care for her would, would obviously have been very different to how she was treated at home and there is that blanket approach applied everywhere in hospitals a lot of the time because obviously they're you know they're understaffed they're overworked and that's fair enough they're going through a lot themselves um but there does need to just be that ability to tread carefully around people who may not have the same cultural experiences as your own and just understanding that. um, And just being extra cautious, I guess, especially if someone can't communicate in English with you, I don't think the response should be, Oh, this person doesn't speak English. This, you know, they're really irritating me. I can't understand. I can't help them. Therefore, I think it's more about you know listening to what they're saying, perhaps not even the language, but the body language. And where necessary consulting someone else, maybe a colleague who might speak the same language or perhaps going back to the person's relatives and saying, Oh, this, they try to communicate this to me. What do you think this means? I think just taking those sort of proactive, you know, practical approaches. We will make a difference.
0: Mm. that's an ideal world and that's what i would like to see but it doesn't happen (laughs) and i've got so many examples of where a nurse will walk away from someone because they can't understand what they're saying and just Mm. leave them in distress so um you know i I don't expect them to speak the language or whatever but use your initiative which you can do Mm. uh, to find out what the distressed person needs yeah there are ways to find out you can ask pe- other people you can get a translator actually most national health service services offer the translator option yeah. um and you can ask a colleague or some or something yeah, exactly. like that
1: and there's google if anything you know just look up south asian diasporas look up the bengali culture and you know, what what they do
0: what's their custom and, and they can't say And they can't say that they don't use Google, because when I go to my GP appointments, they've got Google right up there. So, (laughs) so, you know, they can't say they're not allowed to use that option. Yeah. Yeah. It's
1: been a really interesting discussion talking about bereavement and just being able to break those barriers and stereotypes which exist within our communities and beyond our communities, you know, externally amongst Mm. people and there's definitely communication barriers in both those respects which can definitely be addressed in very simple ways as we've looked at today given the examples we've put forward and i think yeah it's very important to be able to just take a step back and reflect and think more widely i guess i think these examples Mm. that we both shared you know sort of demonstrate how we can do that and and make that positive impact i always ask my guests to talk about a book they recently read and perhaps extract a quote from it if if possible I was wondering if you had something like that that
0: you enjoyed I, recently I do have one but it's not recent and it I don't That's know fine. how feminist it is
1: <laughs> I mean anything you strongly relate to really doesn't have to be feminist you know
0: Okay yeah. Okay so it's a chapter within a book called The Prophet and the author is Khalil Gibran I hope I'm pronouncing his surname correctly now there's lots of poetry in here the chapters are broken up into love death life but the chapter that I've chosen is on children and the reason I've chosen it is because it very much demonstrates how my father parented me for his generation I was very fortunate for the way that he parented me he was wonderful Mm. And I'll read it out if you like. Yeah, sure. Go for it. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong not to you. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts. For they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls. For their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow which you cannot visit not even in your dreams you may strive to be like them but seek not to make them like you wow that was a very impactful <laughs> impactful poem i guess you
1: said yeah yeah that definitely brought a tear to my eye. i have to say very meaningful i'm gonna have to look this up <laughs> after after this podcast because that's that's a really awesome poem. i speak so much about our intergenerational culture
0: Absolutely. And I, you know, this book has been around for a long time. It's a classic. Anyone that's listening, you know, it's brought me so much comfort. Mm. And uh, it's actually a book that I passed on to one of my podcast guests. Oh, really? And,
1: oh, yeah,
0: wow. I, you know, it's, it's had beautiful gold edging, it was an original. And, um, you know, I've learned a lot from hosting Bereavement Room podcast, and I actually passed that book on to one of my guests, and they really appreciated it. So yeah if you haven't read it go and get it Uh, you can order it add it to my list yeah yeah
1: it's been a really um interesting and i guess eye-opening discussion to hear someone else's perspective on bereavement and what um, you've gone through personally and then being able to share my own as well so thank you very much for virtually attending today's um, podcast recording
0: it's been a really
1: interesting discussion so thank you customer for coming on today
0: Thank you, Tanya. It's been wonderful. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this discussion or topic interesting and you want to share your views, we'd love to hear from you. I'm so grateful to those of you who have taken the time to leave me comments, reviews and messages about your thoughts on the podcast. It's really helped inform my direction for this season. Keep your comments coming. I really do love them. You can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyusweeklydose.com. Please do join the conversation using the hashtag BrownDon'tFrown podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, I'd be super grateful if you could leave me a rating and review, as this helps the podcast garner further traction. Please like, share, and subscribe. Until next time, thank you.